Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Powhider. Today on the show, we're going to recap some uh, really important news items, and then later we'll be talking to Hannah Cole, who is an artist and an accountant, and she's going to be talking to us about. Uh, uh, a whole bunch of things uh, regarding taxation, artists, and the latest uh, tax cuts. Uh, so let's begin with our uh, first news item of the day. William? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the recent profile of Peter Brandt in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, he's the publisher of Interview Magazine, which was announced that it had uh, folded and was going you know, bankrupt and closing, but now is coming back. And uh, there's the whole profile of this kind of like very interesting uh, business strategy by Peter Brandt. Um, there are some tax implications that I think we'll want to talk with Hannah about in this um, piece. But the first thing that jumped out at me was um, sort of how the, the magazine is being reborn. Um, and so the, the writer of this sort of um, there's a quote that I just want to kind of throw out there. On May 25th, Interview's chief revenue officer, Jason Nykich, uh, released a memo that said Interview would rise from the dead under the ownership of an entity called Crystal Ball Media. The next issue, he said, would come in September. The new creative director would be Mel Ottenberg, a stylist who works with Rihanna. Interview, he promised, would be as beautiful, as creative, and as visually stunning as ever. The president would be Kelly Brandt. Mr. Brandt's daughter, and the magazine's digital director. So I just want to kind of pause here on this. This is just, there's something I want to kind of explain about this. Um, so, explain me away. Yes. Uh, so, so in my decent show at the Aldrich, I sort of satirically suggested that uh, the alt-contemporary would be the period that sort of follows our period of contemporary art, uh, where rich people will essentially like kind of close the door on other classes and create their own kind of hermetically sealed art world. In that scenario, the children of the ultra-wealthy, like Kelly here, will start becoming artists and producing their own sort of like inbred culture. And I think this is sort of like one of these sort of disturbing signposts when the daughter of, you know, Peter Brandt is now going to head Interview Magazine. Um, you know, and I think this is kind of like points to an art world that will become even more stratified, where, you know, the wealthy literally produce their own forms of culture for themselves. And, you know, it's sort of like a, a kind of sad irony that this new media entity that is, is going to be publishing interview is called Crystal Ball Media. And I really don't like the possible future that they're kind of showing us. Um, you know, and, and I hate this development for its like blatant hereditary nepotism. And, you know, the way that like the Brandt family has just pulled a fast one um, with interview through like bankruptcy to stiff employees that were owed in some cases as much as like $500,000. Right. So can I um, just push back on this a little bit? Because mm -hmm. I, I want to uh, talk about um, the idea of like, passing things down um, through the family, which I think sort of historically has not really been a problem. There are all sorts of family businesses out there. There's, um, and people typically don't complain about them. You know, like a mom and pop restaurant may pass down their restaurant to their, to their daughters or sons, and that's fine. It seems like there, there's something else going on here beyond yeah, just Well, there's a passing. lot of things. I mean, look, Peter Brandt didn't found Interview Magazine. This was something created by Warhol. Brandt was just an investor. And uh, a lot of other people were involved in like the content production for Interview Magazine. Now he's installing his daughter 
as the you know right but why is director. that any different with the to- than with the times uh, yeah the his family son took over. owns a yeah, yeah. um they're uh Nothing is terribly different about that, like, scenario. Um, I guess what I'm pointing out here is that, like, Brandt did not start this magazine. Like, you, you've sort of... <laughs> you've got me <laughs> on the sense that I, I'm, I, you know, like, part of what also follows in this article is that Trump uh, and Brandt are, like, they grew up together and are friends. And I, if I have to kind of point out the problems of like Trump owned enterprises and the way his daughter and sons are sort of profiting. Well, let's go there. Like, yes, there I are a lot of really weird issues. That's definitely a problem. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are businesses certainly that are family owned, but when, when do we, when does nepotism come into it, you know? And like, and is it really okay for family owned businesses? Like, just because it's happened historically, do we accept this, you know, as like a, a sort of common condition? I don't necessarily have a problem with people handing down their business to a family member. What I do have a problem with it is people handing down bad business practice practices to their family members. So like one of the things that gets outlined in this article is, you know, what a terrible person Brandt has been from start to finish. You know, and like you talk about his relationship with Trump early on, like they were friends. And, you you know, you when you read that, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, because like it goes through like person after person that has been screwed by Brandt because he just like he bankrupts the business and then restarts it and like has all these like schemes. But the point is, is to never pay anybody what they're owed. Like that's part of the business model. Handing that down through generation and generation is despicable. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of probably parallels we could make with Trump. You know, I mean, here's a guy who is sort of handed uh, a fortune by his father who built like middle class housing and, and housing for like the working class. And, you know, Trump inherited most of his wealth and uh, has, you know, built luxury stuff. You know, and I think with the interview magazine, that was actually, you know, it started by Warhol, something started by artists, and now it's sort of being run by somebody coming from the collector class, like just a different class of people in general. Sure. So probably the least surprising surprising revelation, I guess, is that Brandt is also a close friend of Donald Trump. Um, Mr. Brandt grew up in the Jamaica estate section of Queens. His father owned a paper empire, and one of his close friends at Q Forest School was Donald J. Trump. And I think this this relationship that's outlined in the Times piece uh, can help us kind of understand how Brandt uh, ends up getting sued by James Comey. In 2003, Mr. Brandt was accused of tax fraud in a civil suit by James Comey, then the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. The art dealer Larry Gagosian and Mr. Brandt, the charges said, set up a shell company to buy and sell art. After earning $17 million, the men declared the company bankrupt. Mr. Brandt wound up contributing to a $9.1 million settlement with the government. So, and I think this is maybe a good time for our guest, uh, Hannah, to uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe the tax implications here. Sure. Um, thanks, William. I, I, um, I, you know, you've been speaking about an entrenched... Um, kind of oligarchy of the art world and um i think the the thing that this makes me think of is the implications of the estate tax here um in this new tax legislation the estate tax has just doubled from 11.2 million dollars um per couple that's an exemption so you can give 11.2 million dollars to your children your pizza your three pizzerias your family farm (laughs) 
<laughs> your your, your defunct bankrupt magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and you won't pay a penny of tax on that. So people think that the estate tax is designed to hurt small farmers. That was a very, very manipulative, heartstring pulling way to make people, ordinary people who will never be touched by the estate tax, feel against it. Um, in, in point of fact, there was actually no farm they were ever able to identify where this would affect that farmer. So um, the oh, wow. exemption before this year has been quite large, $11.2 million for a couple, half that for an individual that you can give on to your heirs tax-free. And now with this new law, it's been doubled to $22.4 million. And the estate tax was, uh, Bush brought it back, right? Like it had been... Uh, that exemption had been gotten rid of prior to George Bush in 2000-ish? I know. I don't know the exact chronology. Um, I do believe that Bush did have um, d- do a lot of work on it, and certainly the farmer stuff was happening in the Bush administration. Um, they've been trying to... There's been a long campaign from wealthy donors to try and sway public opinion against the estate tax, which is extremely ironic since the general public will never be touched by it. Yeah, and I mean, this, this, the basic sort of problem, I guess I'm out, I, you know, my show is based on this idea of perpetuating, you know, privilege through passing on wealth to people yes. that, um, uh, you know, their only right to it is sort of the winning the lottery of birth and being born into very wealthy families. And that's the sort of problem I have, not necessarily passing on a business to another family member, like, that seems fine, that's okay. But you know, we're stuck with the Donald Trumps and the Peter Brants of the world. So I am all for uh, getting rid of, you know, these estate tax exemptions and really taxing the hell out of people's wealth. Um, That's my position. So Uh, I'm, I actually support that position as well. I want to put out there that I'm totally in favor of more taxation, particularly at the uh, upper levels. Actually, a question, though, that occurred to me, um, I think when you receive a gift, uh, typically, or at least in the past, it's been $10,000. You can receive up to $10,000 as a gift. Fourteen. 14 it's fourteen thousand. now? Mm-hmm. or So yep. that number has been increased? Or no, it's was been it 14000 14? for a while. And I believe there's an inflation, adju- an inflation adjustment, so maybe a little higher in 2018, actually. Okay. But that affects normal people, I think. Sure. If your parents are helping you out with rent, it's a gift to you and therefore not taxable to you. Right. For most people, uh, you know, even lucky people with parents with extra cash, you can get gifts like that and never be taxed on them. So there's there's another thing. That's just random stuff that I wanted to know, though. (laughs) That's also, it's good news for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so also in the article... uh, Speaking of sort of passes, uh, Warhol also gets his posthumous Me Too moment after being accused of groping Andre Leon Talley's crotch, which not everyone found to be, you know, amusing, like some tick that Warhol had that he would just sort of pass off with like a gee golly, you know, aw shucks thing. Um, And uh, Miss Leibowitz uh, said she kind of stayed distant because she was convinced he was not, quote, a good influence on the young. So not a, you know, Warhol doesn't come out of this article unscathed either. She closes out the article with a sort of interesting observation that, you know, I think we could kind of talk about a little bit. Um, 
Quote, Miss Leibowitz simply shrugged. I don't have as much faith in rich people as other people seem to have, she said. Morals and aesthetics are not related. Surely you've noticed. And so since I have sort of both of you here, um, do we really still believe Miss Leibowitz's assertion that morals and aesthetics are not related? Well, I don't know. For me, I, I guess I'd say yes, I, they're not related. I mean... As I see that statement, I think she's pointing out that uh, buying and collecting art doesn't make you a better person. Um, and Brandt offers great support for that art for that argument. So I kind of like that as a closing statement. Hannah, thoughts on morals and aesthetics, whether they're related? No, absolutely not. I mean, I I'm a big believer in art for everyone, um, and I yeah, I just. I think the less accessible art feels to the common man, the less I'm interested in it. Yeah, and I sort of agree. I think they're absolutely intertwined in that it's more of just an argument. People like to separate the artist from the work so that they don't have to deal with the artist's politics Mm -hmm. or what they do Mm -hmm. (laughs) in their personal lives, and that keeping those two things separate tends to serve the very wealthy and their interests keeping them separate. So... I you know I think it's a it's a larger debate, um, but you know I think a question that we can kind of constantly ask ourselves, or at least on our podcast, which is art, politics, and money. <laughs> Wait, so just to sum up, I think they're not related. Franz Leibowitz thinks they're not related. You guys both think they're related. Yes. Okay, we're on different <laughs> sides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just wanted to make sure. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, one actually, one final thing I wanted to mention. Um, in that story, the the last thing I wanted to talk about is that Brant claims that he is the magazine's largest um, debtor. Like the magazine owes him, uh, what was it, $7 million for money he's advanced the magazine. But the story, the story sort of says, well, the difference between him and the corporation is pretty thin, um, blah blah blah, and so he sort of pushes back against the assertion that the magazine owes him so much. But what he never says is that Brandt is a collector of art. He um and benefits from any of the press that the magazine gives gives him. Like his art accrues value as a result of the publishing platform that he owns. And runs and to some extent has some say in. Uh, and, you know, also his collection is not one that is entirely static, meaning he is someone who sells work. He doesn't just hold on to it indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So I guess I thought that that was um, maybe a slightly distant. I'm not sure if disingenuous is the right term for it, but like it's not telling the whole story and therefore the story is incomplete and misleading. Yeah, well, and it's got a big um, tax and business side to it that, you know, to have, an, to have a protection where his personal assets can't be gone, over, gone after, you know, that his personal assets remain protected because of his misdeeds, he has to have a corporation. And if he's intermingling his personal and his business activities, then, you know, they can do what's called piercing the corporate veil and go after, they should rightfully be able to go after his personal assets. And that person who hasn't been paid 
their $500,000 should be able to go after his home, his cars, things like that. His art collection, frankly. What does um, piercing the what would is, what's that piercing term? the corporate veil is yeah. a legal phrase which means when you set up a corporation if you form an LLC for example a limit, limited liability corp then you effectively put a veil in between you the person and you the business um, and so what it does is that if somebody wants to sue your business they can of course for anything you do wrong in that business but they can only go after your business assets so if you're an artist, they can go after your etching press, your studio, your, uh, what assets does an artist have beyond that? Often not much. Um, but they can't go after your home or your kid's college fund. Um, they can't go after your personal assets. But the whole agreement you make when you form a corporation is that you keep those things strictly separated. If you don't, they can actually invalidate that veil in between the personal and the business. Brant has a like foundation on his property mm-hmm. with his collection um, that's sort of open to the public. You can go see it. I mean, the intermingling is it's, oh, very it's real. But I mean, also, the, it's open to the public Like when he says it is. It's basic, yeah. like it doesn't have... Mm-hmm regular opening hours as far as i know does it like um no but you can call and set up an appointment and go i mean you know the article i don't think totally is misleading in this it's just hard i think for the general public to understand that how intermingled you know the not just the morals and the aesthetics but the ethics you know Mm -hmm. of of somebody who's publishing an art magazine that can review an artist's work and promote it and create value that he may own. He may also own that artwork. Um, And, you know, I mean, the article says, you know, bankruptcy laws don't require owners to assume responsibility for debts at declining businesses, even when those owners live with their supermodel wives on giant Greenwich estates surrounded by modernist masterworks. So the article does point out that they know that he, you know, they're saying he owns artwork and has it. Um, And, you know, quote, the purpose of having a corporation is to insulate against personal liability, said Sushil Kirpalani, a partner at Quinn Emanuel who specializes in bankruptcy and who is not involved in the case um you know so i do think you know there's they sort of point out oh yeah a lot yeah. of this in the article so i don't know if it's totally misleading but no i mean that not that meg is not that the article was misleading but that brant mm. was sort of misleading in his claims and i kind of felt like the the magazine could have gone even deeper that like the article could have gone even deeper than it did in terms of all the conflict of interest of which it just seems like it's like a fractal image you know that like the further down the spiral it goes it just like repeats so anyway well and i guess that that sort of um uh, we have a tax question maybe we could just kind of jump into so here we have a situation where there's a very wealthy man who uh, is able to protect his own personal assets by setting up uh, a corporation um, is this something that artists should consider? I know you just sort of mentioned that we may not have a lot of assets, mm-hmm. you know, in general. But if you're an artist who's making, I don't know, you know, if you start selling work uh, for a significant amount of money and you do have assets, would there be a benefit to setting up a corporation to try to kind of separate those two things? Sure. I think once you start getting into bigger dollar amounts, it's definitely worth considering. Um, it's also worth considering just on a liability level. I mean, an artist that is in motion, you know, doing dance or hiring dancers who could trip and fall. Right. That artist should um, 
I don't want to give legal advice. I'm not going to say should, but you know, would would be wise to consider um, forming an LLC for that reason. Um, but I I just want to because I really like to focus on a sort of um, just an everyman. I would also say that it's always a good idea to look at liability insurance because an artist can very easily cover the same liability with a much cheaper option, which is just getting great liability insurance. It doesn't necessarily require going out and spending the couple and that, thousand. And that's for artists if you had a studio with, you know, studio assistants coming in and yeah. want to make sure they're covered in case there's any accidents in the studio. Certainly that. And if you're having open studios events or things, you know, basic liability, liability insurance will cover your basic like trip and fall kind yeah. of scenario, which is probably the huge majority of artists that's all they're really worried about once you have larger assets i certainly would think it starts to get worth your time to talk to a lawyer um and again i'm not one but i but i i would consider I think it at it's, that point i think it's worth mentioning actually like so afc has um a a studio or office space in the two trees one of the two trees buildings and Mm -hmm. two trees offers the affordable space program so we have subsidized artist space but one of the things that they require is liability insurance so you literally can't rent from them without having liability insurance interesting Hmm. so they're protecting themselves there too i yeah i would assume so yeah and are there uh, i know we sort of talked about this maybe um, before the podcast started, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the tax cuts have brought a lot of changes. And uh, are there any potential benefits to incorp- creating a corporation now um, for artists with the new tax cuts? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I want to clarify one point, because a question I get a lot is, should I form an LLC? Mm-hmm. And I know I've just been talking about that, so I may have muddied the waters a little. But just so that you know from a tax standpoint, an LLC has no tax status. It's called a disregarded entity. So in order to benefit from the tax laws, you would be wanting to choose uh, another taxable entity, like a C-corp is basically the only change you could make that would change the way you're going to be taxed next year. But So let me just kind of back up and mm-hmm. say that there is a new provision in the tax law from 2018, which sunsets at the end of 2025 which is called a 20% qualified business income deduction. So if you as an artist earn $100,000 in profit in your arts activity, then you're going to get $20,000 deduction from that. So you'll only pay tax on $80,000 of your profit instead of 100. So that's great. And that is a part of a it's that is applicable to all pass-throughs. And so just to clarify and also to uh, get everybody's heart rates back down again, um, pass-throughs include sole proprietors. If you're already filing a Schedule C in your arts practice, which you more than likely are, it already applies to you. So there's no change needed for that pass-through law to apply to you. Um, What people are considering is, and I wouldn't even bother with this until your income is in the $400,000 range-ish, is becoming C-corps. Now, the reason for that is not to benefit from the pass-through deduction, which you are more than likely already going to get, but the C-corporate, changing to a C-corp, will give you the new corporate tax rate, and that is permanent. So that would, that could potentially And what is the the corporate tax rate at? 
Um, I believe it's a range has been cut to 21% from, I believe, 35%. Um, the corporate tax rate, that, and when I say corporate, because I know everything, you know, even an S-corp sounds like corporate, but when they just say corporate, they mean C-corp. Um, so that's, a, that's the corporate structure where you pay double tax. You're taxed at the corporate entity level. You file a tax return, and that corporation itself pays taxes. But then also any distributions are taxed a second time when they go to the individual. So if you own Apple stock, then Apple, at least in theory, pays taxes <laughs> um, <laughs> and at the corporate level. But if I, I as a shareholder in Apple, so technically I am an owner of Apple, I also pay tax on capital gains when I trade, sell my Apple stock. So that's the C Corp. Um, so some people might be considering switching to C Corps. And I'm talking about really pretty high income people here. Um, there's a lot more administrative burden to being a C Corp, so it's really not worth your time unless you're willing to hire an accountant year-round, switch over to accrual-based accounting, which you're probably not going to be able to do on your own. Um, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, it's a kind of, it's it's the more formal public accounting. You know, a CPA is for a certified public accountant. The idea with a C-Corp and public accounting, which means by definition accrual accounting, is it's a system that's comparable across the board. So you should be able to look at the financial statements of any C-Corporation and compare them and they're using the same language. So the rest of us are cash basis. Most small businesses are cash basis businesses. You record the income when you get it. You record the expense when you spend it. Um, Accrual is if um, if I book your business, if you say you're gonna buy a painting from me, then I record, at that moment you say you're gonna buy the painting from me, I record it as income, even though I don't have the check yet. What is the benefit of doing that? Well, it's comparability. It's the fact that you can then produce financial statements based on this system that is the same across the board. And so I, as a C-Corp, the other major function of a C-Corp is to take on shareholders. Um, And so a shareholder, an investor, wants to be able to look at the financials and make an assessment um, with real comparable information about, is this company operating better than this company so it's only a comparable thing and it this has to do with like an account is this one of these things that just gets grandfathered in even though there's no benefit to doing it this way aside from uh, the sort of comparable thing where you can compare to other like uh systems oh i i think accrual accounting is great i mean it's really it's a really powerful system and any company once they reach a certain um, size is required to use accrual accounting. It's a more accurate way to keep your books. Yeah, Why I mean, is it more accurate? Sorry, I know I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I just I already jumped in and I'm halfway down. <laughs> sure. So, but why is that a better way of doing things? Because like if you have some, if somebody has said, "I'm going to give you something," mm-hmm. right? like I'm going to buy this from you, and let's say this is an artist who's making a lot of money, you know, making a lot of money. I mean, collectors back out all the time. You don't, I, and that was something when I worked at galleries. Like the director, 
uh, one of my directors always said, like, you cannot count the sale until you have the check in hand. Mm-hmm. So I've why, seen that on the artist side, too. <laughs> so why does it benefit a company to record a sale that has not yet happened? Um, because um, it, it's a very... Uh, it's it's more robust and it um, it gives you a better sense of what the future of that company is going to be and um, it helps you make an assessment that's more than just at this particular moment in time. So um, you can do projected earning statements, things like sure. that. If you know that this company is owed a hundred thousand dollars in the next 30 days, that's a certain piece of information for you. You can also look, you know, there's all kinds of different ratios that um, investors look at to see if they're actually collecting the money that is owed at a good rate. But don't Um, people like put, I mean, maybe I'm assuming too much of people, but (laughs) I've always put projected money into my cash flow statements. Like I would never, because you could never project. Mm Mm-hmm past that but uh, so you're just saying that accrual accounting allows you to do that i mean in quickbooks as opposed to like on a spreadsheet well it what it uses is double entry bookkeeping which just to give you a sense of the power of double entry bookkeeping (laughs) it the medici's accountants are actually the ones who um were instrumental in inventing it alongside their art reference. <laughs> it we, is an we art. Hold it back to an art reference. <laughs> and when they when double entry accounting was invented, it was considered sorcery because it was so powerful. It it keeps accounts of theoretical things of um of all kinds of things that are sort of there's no way to track in a cash basis system. So just as a tiny minor example, if I buy in a double entry bookkeeping system, if I buy $5,000 of art supplies, I my cash account goes down by $5,000, but my art supply asset account goes up by $5,000. The idea is there's an accounting equation that always balances to zero. This is where the balance in balance sheet comes from. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, so it always balances to zero. When you spend money on something, you're getting something, right? So one account goes up and the other goes down. That's the double entry. That is so fascinating. I, now I want to know, like, are there, like, is there an accountant history, like art history for accounting? Is there, like, an account accounting history class that you can take? Is Where do you learn... Where did you learn this stuff about the sorcery and like the 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 source of balance sheets and that stuff? I I learned that when I was actually going back to school for accounting, and when I saw Medici, I was like, whoa! Because you're rarely talking about art in accounting classes. Sure. So I I perked up at that one immediately and thought, wow, these are art collectors inventing this system for keeping their books. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating. Well, I guess we can cut the uh, question about whether taxes are boring now. <laughs> yeah, I think taxes are, are fascinating. They can And they can also get the heart rate up. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, they certainly can, especially mine. <laughs> so in other news, uh, there, Patty, you brought up the uh, recent um, five points ruling. 
the the case that was settled around the Five Points building in Queens that was torn down. Right. Yeah. So in a previous podcast, we had discussed the uh, banners on this new building that had been torn down, which uh, read New York's best new installation art or some version of that. So we were both very offended by these signs because, of course, they had ripped down artwork sort of in a clan- what appeared to be a clandestine manner. But anyway, the, the landlord uh, of that particular building, uh, Gerald Wolkoff, was ordered to pay $6.75 million in damages to the artists, a sum that was made larger, surely because the judge found out that he was misled in the previous trial that allowing the demolition by Wolkoff, who had claimed that he'd lose all the tax credits if he couldn't de- demolish the building right away, where in reality, I think he hadn't even applied for the permits or something like that. So, mm-hmm. like, this judge was pissed. <laughs> Anyway, it was a, a little story of um, comeuppance that I quite enjoyed. <laughs> and again, the uh, we you know this had something to do with tax credits, <laughs> <laughs> double entry accounting, yeah. uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in this entry, the artists are are awarded six point seven five million. And I guess Patty, my my sort of question: Do you think the artists deserve this much money uh, as an award? I don't know. I think that's a difficult question to ask. I, I mean, sure, actually. Like, I mean, it's a huge amount of money. I don't know how large the number. I have no artists. idea how it was, how that value was achieved. Yeah. You know, like yeah. what was the metric to award street artists, you know, millions of dollars? Like what is even the market value of street art? You know, what are they, was he using Banksy as a... <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I seriously, I have no idea what what that was based on, what that award was based on. I mean, it probably is punishing the developer, but you know what? I'm kind of fine with that, and there are reasons for that. One, I think it's good to make an example of people who are lying, and then this guy is just an asshole on top of top of, on top of all the lies and all the rest. Like this sign that he put up last year, just to like dig into artists like I live in Woodside Long Island City is kind of close to me it's on the seven seven line this guy is already too close to where I live like I I don't want him anywhere near me if these street artists get a lot of money in in a way that feels disproportionate I feel like it's not that hard to maybe make the argument that this doesn't exactly make up for hundreds of years of not being paid well but it's it's a little bit of something. Yeah, and I mean, my, the real lesson here for me is that, you know, I hope it, it uh, developers see this and just won't mm-hmm. leave art alone. You know, I just hate the way that art gets tied to gentrification projects as a way to kind of like make things feel good. Like, we'll put some art on it. So you know, the, the flip side of it, the reason why I have any question about whether the street artists deserve it is we're also recording this podcast in Bushwick. And it's like the epicenter of like a street art pandemic uh it's awful there's tours like street art tours with french tourists you know kind of roving around the neighborhood with bluetooth headsets and you know maybe it's fine but it just annoys the shit out of me oh i mean don't get me wrong i mean i i don't like graffiti art it's it's not my thing at all i went to nashville i think like last year and i wanted to get a sense for the art 
art scene there because there was a 21C hotel that had opened up. And I got a tour of all of this street art that was going on. And like, that was pretty much it. (laughs) I was just like, like, this was somehow supposed to be an example of ways that the city could sort of inexpensively uh, give artists like a little bit of money and see a lot of bang for their buck. Uh, and I, yeah, you don't have to pay street artists. They're supposed to be giving it away for free, yeah. which then, you know, the, the, the award of millions of dollars for it is just, that's, there's still sort of a question because I still think, you know, one of the defining things of street art is that it's kind of public art. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is, it, it began as something that was, you weren't going to commodify it. It was supposed to be a kind of free experience. And now when it gets sort of intertwined with commodification and brand building and all of this stuff, um, whatever made it interesting sort of gets lost for me. And there's a lot of like just bad, bad visual art out there. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's hard for me to separate like the desire for on my part, my own desire to see people get paid for what Mm -hmm. they do. And um, like this kind of muddying the waters in terms of something that might have been kind of interesting as a free form of expression and is now just like an ad. Yeah. And I mean, we, you know, it's just being in Bushwick, we live with like the, the history of this too. Like we used to have the Bushwick open studios, uh, that happened in June and, you know, here, and it became kind of like a big street party mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the street artists sort of take over our own little five points and, uh, you know, they started having DJ sets and it really turned into a street fest. And like Bushwick Open Studios started realizing like, well, this is not what we wanted uh, this event to be. We wanted people to go into artist studios and see the art. We didn't want it to become a way to like sell Bushwick as a trendy hip neighborhood and contribute to gentrification. Mm-hmm. So BOS moved the Open Studios to the fall. And what was left is just like a street art weekend festival and it's just a shit show it turns the jefferson stop into a place you you know like no rational adult wants to be anywhere near and it's like the worst parts of it you know and it just like it it, if the street art was even good this would kind of turn you off from it and like the damage it's doing to the neighborhood um at least for the existing residents you know in terms of bringing in really just kind of terrible people on the weekends uh, and raising the rents and just contributing to like the the problems um, seems to be like what it's doing, you know, and I don't know, it's all tied up with street art. Yuck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, in another bit of news, uh, Basilea, the Spanish pronunciation of Basel is a collaboration between artists, uh, I'm not even, I'm not going to be able to say these names right. Alamasugui, Isabel Lewis, and the architecture firm Resetas Urbanas, and uh, was curated by senior uh, curator for creative time, Elvira Diagenaya Osi. So Basilea is the project. It takes place at Art Basel, it um, is a collaboration between these three artists whose name we can't pronounce, and the senior curator also has a name who we can't pronounce. This Creative Time project at Art Basel, also, I've read about it a couple different places. I can't figure out what it is. 
As far as I can tell, there's a bunch of free workshops and dance classes organized by the multidisciplinary artist, uh, Isabel Lewis. Some gravel gets dumped every day after the fair, the same amount that is taken from quarries that facilitate construction projects in the area. Why? Apparently, it showcases the destruction of land behind architectural construction. I don't know about anybody else, but I don't think I need to travel to Art Basel to know that this is really bad work. William, do you have a more positive interpretation that you could bring to it? I mean, no, uh, <laughs> but I'll try. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it does sound sort of terrible. I mean, I when I first read it, I, I sort of thought, like, I don't think the artists involved in this need to kind of make this kind of data visualization. Like, how can people understand how much construction is being done? Let's move gravel, you know? Like, it just seems kind of redundant yeah. and silly. Um and just sort of like a poorly thought out, you know, kind of spectacle. I don't really have a problem with holding classes or doing dance workshops, but I think the doing it at Basel or any kind of art fair is a disaster. I mean, I know this from experience when Jen Dalton and I did hashtag rank at uh, seven in Miami. We were having conversations and doing interesting projects, but the kind of collector class that was there would kind of wander by, kind of tilt their heads, grimace, maybe like give us a funny look, and then continue on. They had no interest in participating in, like, asking questions about what it means to be very wealthy and this art a luxury commodity. And I think, you know, um, Occupy Museums learned this when they did. They tried to take part in uh, one of the Berlin Biennials. I mean, they described it as being sort of like a petting zoo. You know, they're sitting around talking earnestly about how to change institutions, and the public was just like, what are these weird people doing in the middle of this place? So I just, you know, I sort of think any well-intentioned project like this, uh, art fairs, biennales are just the wrong setting completely. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like the workshops and the performance, like dance classes and things like that can end up coming off like, like it, it just feels really privileged. And that seems like a huge problem for a nonprofit we're going to produce this thing in this place where it can't possibly, it's only going yeah, to serve. What is Creative Time doing at Basel? That's just like the first problem here. Like they shouldn't even be involved in Basel. Yeah. You know, just like dumb, you know, like don't do it. But I well, guess they, this they is the new it. direction uh, post NATO and post. Well, Japan. I think it's a lack of direction, right? Because mm-hmm. like this, uh, they have a new director. Um, coming from Dallas, who I've actually heard a lot of really good things about, so I'm really excited to see what she does. But this seems like something that was clearly planned in the uh, interim director. There's nobody really leading the ship. There's just somebody keeping everything afloat. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they have. They also they have a history of doing things at Basel. I think they launched Creative Time launched something. In the mid-aughts um, with, uh, now I'm trying to remember what it was. I think, it didn't they do something in the sky? They had uh, public artwork where there was a plane, um, you know, making clouds that said something, something like that. That was in our Basel, Miami. Uh, well, but you again, know, thankfully I've, I don't recall these. <laughs> I just like... I, Getting back to the original point, there's really just no point in uh, 
public art organization doing making free art for people who can afford anything they want ever yeah i would agree uh yeah that's catering to the wrong audience yeah well so speaking of nonprofits, uh how will the new tax law affect uh organizations like creative time and maybe organizations like smack melon or art of city that is a good question and one that I have been really wondering about. I did find a um, projection from the Tax Policy Center, um, which says, this is just to state what happened historically and what they expect now, about 25% of individual income tax filers claimed a deduction for charitable contributions in 2015. The share was above 33% in three states, Connecticut, Maryland, New Jersey, and under 15% in three states, North Dakota, South Dakota, West Virginia. But under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, this share is expected to be halved. So that's a pretty huge impact on nonprofit charitable giving. Um, and the reason that this is going to be so affected is they have doubled the standard deduction. And I know that doesn't seem like a clear line to a lack of charitable giving, but basically now about 75, I mean 70%, 65%, 70% of taxpayers take the standard deduction and the rest itemize. Now, only taxpayers who itemize their taxes get any credit for their charitable contributions um, because it's an itemized deduction. So if you're no longer itemizing, you're no longer getting any deduction for your charitable contributions. And because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it, the projections say that about 90% of taxpayers will now take the standard deduction, meaning that we're going to go from about 30% of the population to only 10% of the population actually being able to claim charitable contributions on their taxes. But do, do you think people will then, I mean, literally just because they can't make that deduction will stop their charitable giving? Is that the implication? I deeply hope that in people's hearts they give to charity for reasons other than the tax deduction, although I like that there's an incentive, and I think any economist will tell you incentives matter. Um, you know, interestingly, speaking of the oligarchic tendencies of our country right now, they increased the ability for high-income taxpayers to give charitable contributions. And so uh, it used to be you could give a full 50% of your income towards charitable contributions and take a deduction right then. Um, they've increased it now to 60% of your income. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the high, you know, the top 1% may give even more and they, and certainly when you're in the top 1%, you are, uh, you're using charitable deductions in a very savvy way. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that is going to, those opportunities increase for the 1% now under well, this tax Well, the Koch brothers will have more money to sabotage public transportation and public transit projects oh. around the country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, David is sick, so maybe that will affect his uh, ability to wreak havoc. All right. Well, the next story uh, we have is this. And like, it's a fundraiser. Yeah. <laughs> the next story is it's more about fundraising. There is a crazy story in Hyperallergic that ran uh, just a, a recently about a $250 million fundraiser at the University of North Carolina, UNC, Chapel Hill, called Arts Everywhere, which is part of a giant $4.25 billion campaign called Campaign for California. 
So the uh, $250 million fundraiser seems like it's raising money for art organizations that don't really need it while starving their own teachers. So this is an actual quote from the story. For us, Arts Everywhere is really about making sure that everyone knows that the arts are for everyone. Emil Kang, the special assistant for Chance, uh, Chancellor for the Arts, says in a promotional video for the campaign, they're not just major arts majors or arts faculty or arts patrons, but for everyone. So, you know, the privileged elite who are art professors don't deserve the money. <laughs> Um, anyway, so there's now a response campaign called Arts Here, which is protesting the long cuts that the uni university has made uh, to the art department, which operates in a building that has several safety code violations that need immediate attention. I have a quote here. The faculty in the Department of Art and Art History note that since 2011, they've lost a total of seven studio faculty, five of them tenured or on ten are on track to receive tenure, including two African-American instructors and one Native American instructor. Since then, only one tenure line and two fixed-term three-year appointments have been extended. So it's clear that the art department's funding is just completely in the shitter. So the idea that there's this fundraiser out there that's trying to raise money for the arts but is ignoring the, the main place where arts get made seems really problematic. Anyway, this seems like a really good place. I mean, Hannah, I know that you are based in North Carolina, mm -hmm. in Asheville, so you probably have some thoughts on this. And William, I know that you can probably explain why this is bad just to begin with. Well, I mean, I just think that, you know, it's sort of a, a, a classic, you know, sort of case of like an institution that has one set of values, which right now involve, you know, sort of underpaying labor, slashing its art ed budget, getting rid of, you know, the program, um, and using the kind of democratic and egalitarian values of art to kind of justify these budget cuts. Mm -hmm. You know, like art is good. We want it everywhere but here. You know, I think that's really what their uh, campaign should be called. You know, art's everywhere but here at the university. Um, and, you know, they're sort of like admitting tacitly that they don't really want to teach the arts anymore and that it's um, really it's just a community thing. You know, it should be out there in the community, but it's not really an academic pursuit. And, you know, in a, in a sort of twisted way, they're using the critiques of academic elitism and exclusion um, to cut the arts. So instead of making the you know faculty and the program more diverse and getting more people involved at the institutional level, they're just trying to get rid of it. So in some way, I mean, and what's sort of really twisted about this though is it's like they're it's like cutting off the nose to spite the face, but then they're also celebrating it with like a giant fundraising campaign. Like it's yeah, really fucked up. It is but really. do you think that organizations like Creative Time have maybe kind of paved the way for this sort of campaign to even take place? We were just talking about a public art project that really only serves this like super small community that doesn't need public art to begin with. So like there's this idea that like art isn't for everyone. It's for this elite few. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, it's it. this is I feel conflicted about this and somewhat ambivalent, certainly post Trump that, you know, for the longest time, I think it was very easy to criticize the art world for being elitist and out of touch and that its pricing structure make it insane, like it's impossible to buy art, you know. Um, you, there are so many things about it that are sort of wrong. But once somebody starts attacking it, 
um, or or the the kind of like underlying values of art, which are maybe um, things that are complicated and beautiful and challenging. You know, like when Trump came along, suddenly I'm like, I feel sort of defensive of some of the elitist values like complexity and ambiguity <laughs> and <laughs> things that are difficult and not easily, you know, that are, that are not purely entertaining. Um, and suddenly, you know, I find myself in some strange positions, like defending things that I might think are sort of, uh, that are still problematic. But like, I don't think getting rid of art programs at institutions is, a, is good in any way. Oh, like no. taking it yeah. out of higher education is ridiculous. And to hear somebody like uh, an organization sort of say it's not just for, you know, college kids and tenure track professors, um, that it's just it's it's something that should happen. You know, everyone should have it out in the community. I don't quite know what that art is like, you know, I don't even know what this like arts everywhere thing means. I don't, what are they uh, doing with all that money? Well, and also, it's almost saying, like, art should be made out of breadcrumbs. You know, like, here are little painted pianos around the campus that are for everybody to sit down and play at. But instead of the university saying, we invest in artists and actually teaching a methodology and a, you know, through uh, critiques and um, just institutional investment to really grow meaningful art and artists, I, I think that's really... Yeah, and it's a social, I mean, you know, when I think of public universities, I'm thinking that a lot of that money comes from a taxpayer base, mm-hmm. that it's a social and societal investment, whereas this is also a fundraiser. Like, where is that money coming from? You know, it's like if, if we're getting rid of uh, progressive tax structures, we're going to be ever more reliant on kind of constant fundraising for the arts, mm-hmm. you know, and that that seems to be problematic, you know. I don't know, we, we talk about this all the time, although, you know, these kind of like new models of uh, subscription services, you know, this kind of like micro patronage models where we're all sort of now just individually funding the things we're interested in, mm-hmm. as opposed to things like taxes for public universities and yeah. art departments. Um, speaking of that, I would just like to put a little um, local, I mean, semi-local North Carolina context to this story. Um, I do live in Asheville, which admittedly is six hours from Chapel Hill. It's not nearby. But um, I can say that this is a there's a fairly straight line you can draw from the gerrymandering that has been going on in North Carolina and frankly, many states um, to this cutting of the arts funding, because there is now because of gerrymandering in a state that has been and is, you know, uh, is about 50 50 Democrat Republican. Um, through gerrymandering, um, there's now a Republican supermajority in the state legislature. So despite the fact that the taxpayers, citizens of North Carolina, have elected a Democratic governor out of sheer anger from the past Republican one um, and his HB2 shenanigans, there's a veto-proof majority because of gerrymandering in the legislature, and the legislature has taken it upon itself to cut the funding for um, for the traditionally really excellent public school system in North Carolina, including the flagship UNC Chapel Hill. So I guarantee that that you know that effort to starve the university system 
is you know this this happens to be how the university has choose chosen to play out it it's undoubtedly incredibly difficult problems right now with a lack of funding yeah and i mean just you know this is maybe tangential but uh trump floated the idea of merging the department of education with the department of labor which for me is not equating like work with education but really just saying that you know education is just a pathway into work you know, and that there's no intrinsic value in education, that really education should only be there to get people into the workforce. And in that universe, the arts don't exist. I mean, I just, I don't see it, you know. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing just in that context. Um, in Asheville, where I live, there's a UNC there too, UNC Asheville. And they have been riding the STEM um, popularity by investing a lot of money in a new STEAM program, STEAM for Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, yeah. and Math. I, I remember when they added the A to, <laughs> yeah. to STEM. So they've inserted themselves into, you know, everything's all about STEM, and so they're trying to really make this push um, for STEAM. And so they're trying to, they've actually got some really cool programs going where art students combine with engineering students and design different inventions to help people with handicaps or physical mm. disabilities. It's very cool, although I will say to you that it is extremely directed towards applied art. Um, I'm not putting a judgment on that, but it, it definitely, you know, art in the sense of, um, you know, the val- the object that um, has no utility is, you know, that that is certainly a place that's going to struggle, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I um, mean, I'm really just like... <laughs> overall kind of confused about how this campaign even came into being and then like this is its second year so I guess presumably it ran last year and there maybe there were problems but it's part of a larger campaign to raise money for UNC so like why on earth would you run a campaign that's like you know about funding arts for everyone that is against your best interest. Mm-hmm. The marketing just seems like so backwards and so poorly thought out. It's somebody needs to be fired. Like probably more than one person. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, well, that wraps up the news uh, segment, but we did have like a few final questions in terms of, uh, you know, the new tax laws that we wanted to go over with you. Sure. Um, You know, one, I guess, is if you live in New York, how will the tax cut affect New Yorkers? Um, That's going to start on a down note. Um, um, Unfortunately... I think taxes should not have any partisan position whatsoever, but in the way that this bill was passed, um, they did it on a reconciliation vote, which means it only needed 51 votes, I believe, to get passed. Um, So it didn't require input from the other party. Um, That enabled some really partisan stuff to, to pass through in this legislation. And one of those things is some real targeting of high tax um, states and um, blue states. So one of the biggest hits that New York is going to really suffer from is a new cap on state and local tax deductions. Um, previously, there was no limit on the deductibility of your state and local taxes on your federal tax return. Um, so if you paid, 
you know, $50,000 in New York state income tax, $10,000 in property tax. I'm making up numbers completely. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you paid a total of $60,000 in state and local taxes, that full combined number would be a deduction on your federal return. That was one of the reasons that states are really able to have high taxes, um, invest in things like a subway system and a public school system and and health programs. What what are the caps now? The cap is now ten thousand dollars. What? Um, which is, you know, it's pretty low. Um, That's very low. It's very low. They actually intended to take it out fully, but were um, conceded to a couple of blue state Republicans. Um, I believe there are some in New Jersey, in California, um, and New York. Um, they put this ten thousand dollar cap back in. Um, so that there's something. They weren't taking it all away. And, I mean, I know there's a lot of discussion about, like, getting rid of the um, mortgage deduction for homeowners. Or, mm-hmm. um, they chipped away at it. Mm-hmm. They haven't gotten rid of it. Um, most economists think it's a terrible thing um, because it's it's really a subsidy to the real estate industry, um, which is highly privileged in the tax code to mm-hmm. begin with. But it does allow people to buy more house. You know, it stretches their dollar a little further in their housing. So there is a new um, cap on mortgage interest, um, which is for if you if you obtained your mortgage before 2018, then the cap is on a million dollars of debt for a married couple, or five hundred thousand dollars of debt for a, a, an individual. That's the interest on that debt. So it's not it's the interest on your million dollars. And then if you're if you have a new loan, if you've gotten a new loan um, after 2018, then that cap is even a little lower, 750,000 for a married couple and um, 375,000 dollars of debt. Well, I think it's, it's certainly think it's of interest to uh, artists because I know a lot of artists are buying homes, you know, they're they're yeah. moving out of the city uh, and you know becoming homeowners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the other questions I had, though, is that New York, there was some discussion of like, has New York figured out any workarounds around this cap? Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> one. And I admit that this gets into some really tricky, tricky legal territory that I just have, I just have, frankly, no idea. But I will also say neither does anyone else. So New York, um, Andrew Cuomo said that this tax, this tax law change would be the end of New York. Um, he really means it, um, that this is a disaster for New York State. So the New York legislature actually passed legislation to counter this bill, which is, I have no idea what the implications are when the state and federal laws conflict. (laughs) I have no idea how to advise clients on which one to follow. Honestly, it's a really tricky Well, this is, I mean, this is like a sort of moral, sort of an ethical dilemma almost, you know, like, Mm -hmm. because I I know Patty and I had sort of a question, like, is there some way to protest the Trump administration through taxes and tax law? But Mm -hmm. this seems to be like a conflict that's way beyond the individual. You know, this is like a state federal thing now. Oh my goodness, it really is. And it's interesting, it actually does kind of tie back into charitable giving because um, the New York, let me make sure I can get the language right, but they want to, New York wants to make it, make people able to convert some of their state and local taxes into a charitable gift, which will be deductible. Now we've already discussed that it's not as deductible for as many people as it used to be. Right. right. So it's still only going to kind of hit a top earner. But that's, um, 
basically they're trying to make it stay as tax deductible as possible, your state and local income taxes. Um, so there was that particular workaround that mm-hmm. they, they passed the law. I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> we'll see. There's going to be a lot of lawsuits to try and settle where things are, um, where things are. Well, and I think for our audience, uh, uh, which involves a lot of artists, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think, are there, are there things specifically uh, in the new tax code that it's going to affect artists? Um, and I mean, I think one of the things that jumps out at me is that if there's a, the standard deduction is doubled, it might incentivize artists not to file, uh, itemize. Sure. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward decision. If your itemized deductions are higher than the standard, mm-hmm. you're going to itemize. And if they're not, you're not, um, because it's more money in your pocket. Mm-hmm. So yes, I mean, the law is meant to make people flip from itemizing to taking the standard deduction. I should mention, it sounds good that the standard deduction is doubled, and certainly some people will benefit from it, but they took away the personal exemption. And the personal exemption is something that applies to everyone in the whole country, across the board, whether you itemize or take the standard deduction. And that is a $4,050 personal exemption per person. So I have two kids in my household me, my spouse, and my two children each get a personal exemption on our tax return. That's $16,200. And that's gone? Tax-free, and that's gone now. <sighs> that's a big hit. That's, that's another a, that's a down big, it's a note. Big, it's a big hit, yeah. For some people, especially people with one kid or less, um, or one dependent or less, it's not just kids, um, they may come out better with this doubled standard deduction. People with larger families um, certainly will um, so be negatively how, impacted. How how do Republicans uh, how do they even sell this? And do Trump voters understand this that this tax cut negatively impacts families? And the larger the family, the harder it's going to hit them. Coming from the party that's supposedly of like family values. Well, I mean, I have a. I think the thing about this is it was passed so quickly. This is the largest tax change in the last 30 years. And it was passed so quickly, there simply was not time for public debate. And I think that um, it really speaks to the value of a longer, the frankly, the traditional process. Um, because there's a lot of impact, certainly, on. certainly I would have liked a lot more organizations to get together and say, hey, Big families, like, I, I don't know, maybe the Utah contingent. I, I, I right. mean, I don't know. Like, could have gotten together and say, hey, this really hurts us. We don't, you know, we're, we want big, big families. We, this is going to hurt us. I would have liked them to have a chance to speak out. But there wasn't time for anyone to organize. Mm-hmm. Another one, and I don't think this is partisan, is the charitable contributions. If nonprofits had had the time to digest what was in the bill and then organize together and say, wait a minute, this is going to have our contributions. We're going to be killed. Well, I mean, again, this is something that I just, the idea of nonprofits in the United States, I feel like they're endangered species. Mm -hmm. This is another way of trying to kill them off. And it just aligns with (laughs) certain values that um, there are people that just don't think anything should be free. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. Everyone should pay for all of these things, you know, that there should uh, I it's mind-boggling, but you know it just seems to kind of line up with the idea, like when the the Met starts charging, you know, admission because they want people to have some skin in the game. Basically, mm-hmm. um, it's it's really disheartening. 
you yeah. know. Um, so, I mean, just in terms of, uh, so we don't lose it completely, but um, is there things specifically that you think artists should know um, that they should talk to their tax preparers or accountants about that might be coming? Because this is so, this is such a huge change. Are there things that even accountants are like still trying to figure out? Yeah, there is a lot that accountants are still trying to figure out. <laughs> I mean, I have been taking continuing education as is a requirement for my license, along with every other accountant out there. And each new um, CPE that comes out on this tax bill changes. And they say, we were wrong in the last one. We The new guidance has been issued since the last time you took this course. I mean, it's really crazy out there. Um, so certainly have a little mercy on your accountant as one mm. piece. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people are going to have questions about that 20% deduction on qualified business income. That isn't art specific, but, um, yeah. but it's going to affect artists. Absolutely. So income from art sales. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, we could look at, I could look at my total income from art sales and, say I'm take, I, I get to deduct 20% of that? You do, yes. And this was put in the bill. This wasn't originally in the idea for this tax bill, but the corporate tax, and by which I mean C-Corp, mm-hmm. corporate tax rate was cut so dramatically. And honestly, that was the point of this tax bill. That is the yeah. major thrust of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, I can't remember who the legislator was, but someone brought up that they wanted some parity for pass-through organizations. Pastors tend to be, they're not always, but they tend to be smaller businesses. Um, some of them are gigantic, um, but all of all small business, I mean, it's rare that a small business is a C-Corp, so it does kind of impact the lower dollar amount um, taxpayer to have this pass-through deduction that they added back. All right, well, I think that about wraps up our program. Unless, Hannah, if you have any other, were there any other tax topics that we, we didn't get to? I think, well, there's a lot in the bill. It would be hard to get through it all. But I mm-hmm. do think that um, one thing I want everybody to know, and this is not just for artists, but really everybody, is that everyone across this whole country is going to have a big uh, hiccup in their taxes this next filing season. So everybody, if you have um, a job with an employer, it's a good time to file a new W-4. You can go to the IRS website, and they have a tax um, withholding calculator. You should go ahead and plug your numbers into that calculator and see what you should really be withholding based on the new changes and how they're going to affect your individual taxes. Because what you don't want to happen is have your withholding be based on last year's tax laws and then have the new tax laws go into an effect and and be hit with a really big tax bill. Oh my God, that would suck. Well, I think we're almost out of time. So Hannah, I want to thank you for coming in and explaining the various horrors of the new tax code. Listeners, media artist Tally Hankis from Lovid will be in the studio for the next pod and we'll be discussing what it's like to manage a career in your 40s. Spoiler alert. There are fewer grant opportunities and more hustling is required. Woohoo! So uh, look forward to that. And in the meantime, stay cool.